hoping that but this isn't just a place where they come and park funds, but they actually do invest in the local ecosystem and not just financial assets. I guess the benefits of being wealthy is you can kind of do what you want. Maybe instead of a Lamborghini, can you invest in public art, public education? Can you invest in sports? Things that lots of people can enjoy, because I think that kind of improves the quality of life for the city around you and not just your own personal benefit. We can hopefully build like more robust and deep capital markets, which I think is something that New York and London have had a stranglehold on. And it would be great to be able to shift some of that center of gravity out to Asia. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseha.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Acevil, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Morning, Shien. Good morning, Jeremy. What caused you to wear the red shirt today? I'm a little bit, yeah. I'm not prepared for this moment. <laughs> I actually like wearing red. Ever since I lost like 20 kilograms, I've been like, okay, I can start wearing something other than black. I think red has been a color I like. But yeah, I tend to wear it at home or on a casual day rather than a work day. But yeah, this is my red lucky shirt, I guess. Oh, okay. I don't know what you need luck for, but good luck. <laughs> well, I never heard that more luck in life, right? On that note, I'd love to do a shout out to two folks who very graciously gave us some feedback. I think that was Ryan Uru as well as Michael Nett. Both of them gave some feedback about how the episodes could be better, uh, what they liked, and in one case, how to improve our sound volume for our mics. So that was good. Thank you so much for the feedback. So what's interesting for you, Shuyen? Have you been on threads? I have been on threads. Fastest yeah. product to 100 million users, even faster than ChatGPT. So I guess it shows you the power of Instagram to bootstrap new social networks, which I think is fascinating. It feels a little bit like Twitter in the early days. Everyone's still nice. The trolls haven't totally figured stuff out yet, and no one has automated their bots. So there's a little bit of people casting around being like, who am I here? And people trying to find their tribes, like, where's FinTwit? Where's real estate twit? You know, where's econ twit? Do hashtags work? So it's actually fascinating to watch um, a new social network try to form and see what things they borrow versus what things they come up with new. And so that's been interesting. I haven't actually posted anything yet. Oh, what? So you just, been, I, you I just feel like I, I went on and now you're just like lurking on trends? I'm lurking. Like 90% of everyone else, right? Everyone is a lurker. It's the one nine ninety. I'm not a huge poster anyway. 
it's not my medium, but they do say building an audience is one of the most high leverage things you could do. So I should probably get on that. Yeah, we started posting the Bray podcast, some of the videograms on threads. I also used it a few times just to talk about stuff, but I haven't gotten much engagement. I, I think I've been a little bit niche. I think one of my first threads, I'm just trying to devolve to the word tweets. Yeah, I was like, oh, let's compare which is worse in Manila or Jakarta traffic. Very niche. Obviously got zero engagement because no well, knows. Well, I think audiences are different too, right? Yeah. Because like it's think, porting over yeah. your Instagram audience and yeah, that is probably exactly. different from your Twitter audience. Yeah, um, exactly. It's the professional audience. So that's is. a little bit like it requires you to kind of re-curate your audience to match yeah. what you want. On Instagram, it's much more visual. I follow more restaurants and artists and things. It's not really a work audience. So it'll take a little bit of work. But I am curious to hear what others' experiences are and like, are we making it a thing? Do we hate use it because Elon is ruining Twitter? So it should be kind of interesting to see. It's not often that you see a brand new social network start from scratch. And it does have advantages, right? It doesn't immediately feel like you're on an, in an empty room, which is like, I tried Mastodon. I tried a bunch of different sort of decentralized Twitter alternatives and it always felt like super niche a little bit empty and so Threads I think has the advantage that it doesn't feel like that right out of the gate. Is this interesting because Facebook continues to slowly die as a social network for people posting but then WhatsApp is growing nicely Instagram is growing nicely and now they've launched Threads which is kind of interesting because all those previous companies are now taking off historically have been acquisitions right? But in this case, they didn't acquire Twitter. They just acquired the talent leaving Twitter. So it's kind of an interesting continuation of that product by acquisition launch strategy that Meta has. I mean, if it works, why not? It'll be interesting though. I mean, we think Facebook is dying, but it's really strong in other countries. So it continues to be like in all the countries where they rolled out Facebook basics, like Cambodia, Myanmar, a lot of people think or use Facebook as their primary interface to the internet, they don't use Google or YouTube as their primary interface. And so there's still something like 3 billion people use Meta products, which is kind of insane. Like that's half the world, oh. and even higher percentage of people who have smartphones. So still a behemoth to be reckoned with. Definitely. I was amused because in Singapore, people use WhatsApp a lot. And I just found out recently, I was in Manila for that trip. And I realized that most people apparently use Facebook Messenger as the way to communicate with one another. So I was like, whoa. When I was in America using Facebook Messenger to get to talk to people, everybody thought I was a massive weirdo. People would just complain. It's like, why are you messaging me on Facebook Messenger? I mean, you are a massive weirdo. That's true. <laughs> Thank you, Shein. <laughs> I don't know if it's your messenger choice that drives your weirdness, but just uh, own it, man. Enjoy yeah. the weirdness. My favorite is like all these apps that are now trying to consolidate all different messaging apps into one. I can't remember one. It was called Pager or something like that. And I was like, this is like Trillo back in the day or Trillion or where it was like yes. MSN Messenger, AIM and ICQ put in one because people just like lost track of all the messaging apps. And now there's like a new wave because now I'm getting messages on LinkedIn, WhatsApp, Messenger, I don't know, fun times. It's terrible. It's terrible yeah. and it's overwhelming. It's the XQCD joke, right? It's like there's like 20 universal standards out there, air quotes. And then someone's like, oh, that's terrible. There's 20 universal standards. We should create a universal standard that encompasses all the standards. And after they do that, there's like now 21 <laughs> standards. Anyway, that's my XKCD. My favorite webcomic that I pretty much send to like either another VC or founder almost like every quarter, I would say, because 
I think it's natural. Every time there's the raw fragmentation, everybody's like, let's create a new universal standard to consolidate the space. And we end up just creating another path, right? Well, you've we never said an XKCD comic. I feel what? left out. What? Okay, you've got to paste it. I'll send it to you after this. This is great. <laughs> All these web comics. So yeah, I wanted to share that you had a wonderful session earlier this week by Hustle Fund talking about family offices. It was three hours. I managed to tune into one hour and I guess I have to listen to the recording for the other two hours. But basically it was about family offices and then you covered both the US as well as Singapore uh, and Southeast Asia. So I thought it was really interesting to hear those profiles where you got them to share about their backgrounds and their investment strategies. And I think folks are very curious about this in Asia, right? Obviously it's a net inflow of wealth to Southeast Asia, that's one. Uh, two, also people are exploring them as opportunities for either investments from a founder perspective, but also VCs are looking to fundraise from them for the LPs. So quite an interesting topic. I was kind of curious, why did you decide to pull it together and how did it come together? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's something that people have a lot of interest in, whether it is we have some family offices that are LPs, and so they are kind of interested in meeting other VCs, finding other investment opportunities. And then, of course, our VC friends are like, hey, I heard there's lots of family offices in Southeast Asia. How do I get to talk to them? And so it seemed like there was enough interest on both sides to pull together a quick event that would have pretty broad appeal. And it's a relatively new phenomenon in Asia, whereas I think it's a much more established phenomenon in the U.S. and Europe who have longer histories of institutionalizing family wealth. So we also thought like a compare and contrast between the two markets would be useful for folks. And so maybe we can start with definitions a little bit because I think family office is like a little bit nebulous. But generally, when we talk about it, it's an investment vehicle that is the result basically of a family having amassed some amount of wealth, maybe from their operating business. And they're kind of like, hey, we built a great manufacturing company or we built a great, you know, distribution business or whatever it is, but we want to be able to invest in other things and diversify our wealth to not just encompass our core operating business. Let's set up a vehicle and figure out how to do that. And I think there's a real range of like pretty informal things where it's like the uncles got together who had built the business and they're like, hey, let's just invest in property together or let's go in and like invest in my friend's kid or whatever it is to pretty professionalized and institutionalized institutions where they've hired professional investment managers. They might handle tax and other strategies in-house as well. We can also talk about the difference between like single family and multifamily offices, but that's sort of what a family office is. It's sort of like the money came from some operating business. They're looking to formalize and try to diversify their wealth and invest in other assets. And you can kind of have a range of things that they invest in. I would say that in general, and this is not across the board, but I would say the U.S. and the European families tend to be more institutional. They're more likely to have had hired an outside asset manager. Obviously, you need a certain scale to be able to support staff. But I think in Asia, even with pretty large sums, often the family is much more involved rather than outsourcing the whole thing to professional money managers. And then I would say also that in the U.S. and Europe, there's a lot more focus on tax and tax optimization versus in Asia, where we have sort of more straightforward tax. And in Singapore in particular, where we don't have an estate tax, there's less need for sort of extreme tax optimization. And then just to finish out the definitions, multifamily offices are basically folks that manage the money of multiple families a little bit to get scale and also take advantage of being able to access kind of 
more professionals when you kind of have the scale of multiple families money kind of being pulled together but yeah let's Let's start there. Where should we go from here, Jeremy? Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's a net inflow of wealth to Asia Pac and to an extent, therefore, Southeast Asia and to Singapore as well. I think a lot of this is because as of this year, 9% of all global family offices are in APEC and 60% of those family offices are in Singapore. And this is something that's happened over the past five years. I mean, five years ago, family offices in Singapore was very, very small. But since then, I think due to intentional industrial and monetary policy and tax incentives, not as grown from effectively very low by an order of magnitude to where it is today. So the average AUM seems to be about $800 million for an APEC family office. So there's obviously a net inflow of billions of dollars into the Southeast Asia region. So these are some of the statistics that are here. So one of the questions that came up and I was quite interested was like, what is the spread? How much are they distributing to public markets? How much are they distributing versus real estate versus startups? So I think obviously everybody who's a techie is kind of like waiting for that down arrow. Like how much of that wealth is actually allocated to private tech assets? So kind of curious, but from your perspective, how you think family offices think about their asset allocation in APEC? Oh, gosh. There's something we say, which is you've met one family office, you've met one family office. They are incredibly diverse. They're all at different parts of their journey. And so I would say that depending on who is calling the shots, they'll have very different kind of like risk appetites and profiles. But I would say in general, most of the families that we meet here in Asia, outside of their core operating assets, they tend to go into real estate first. You know, it's kind of something that's like familiar and solid. And then public equities and possibly institutional debt, and then into alternatives. And so the allocation to alternatives is much lower, I would say, than in the US. And in terms of like startup investing, you're more likely to see it when the younger generations have become more involved. They're often more keen to explore technology and more comfortable investing in it necessarily than the older folks. And so it really is kind of across the board. And a big part of the conversation that we had on Tuesday with our speakers was, how did you even decide to get into venture capital as an asset class? Like the three folks that we spoke with, you know, they came from pretty traditional family businesses and they each had an interest basically in innovation and technology that kind of led them towards those allocations. And they all sort of learned by doing, whether it was learning by doing and making directs and then making a decision that, hey, we're not really staffed to do directs as a major thrust of our strategy and we would rather actually allocate to managers. So it's a pretty, I think of it as a cycle, which is like often families don't think they want to pay management fees. And so they will try to go direct first and then they'll realize that unless they have a huge investment staff, they're not really staffed to go direct. And then they'll kind of turn the corner and be like, okay, let's allocate to managers and then come back around. There are a few family offices that do have pretty robust directs programs. They tend to be bigger and or they have a history of investing direct and the principal is very comfortable with it. But I would say that's the exception rather than the rule. If you made your money in commodities, in construction, in real estate, your first instinct isn't like, let me go build a direct portfolio because it just doesn't feel that familiar. And so they tend to allocate more to managers first. But even then, I think for emerging managers who want to raise from family offices, there's still a big education process because the illiquidity of the asset class, it's a 10-year fund, and the risk profile is just so different, I think, from a lot of other assets that they're more, more familiar with. And so you really need to spend the time to build the relationship and 
educate folks a little bit on what they should expect. Yeah, I think it's something that as a result, I think many VC funds are starting to prioritize reaching out to family offices that have that conversation. And I thought it was interesting because the guest was talking about how there was a two-way education process going on, right? I think it was one was family offices talking to VC funds about what their allocation strategy is, what you just talked about. On the other hand, like you said, you're very much learning from the VC funds about how to deploy, what to look out for, and even pro rata rights, follow on opportunities to invest in that and go direct as a result. So I thought it was a quite interesting conversation. Yeah. And I think there's an aspect of it also, which is like not purely financial, where they like learning about new technologies. So even if it isn't directly relevant to their family business, there is an aspect where they're like, hey, I want to know what's on the frontier. Um, through my fund investments, I really want to be exposed to a different type of founder or a different set of industries. Um, and this is like one way of learning. I have some skin in the game, but I'm also getting things that are not just financially oriented. I'm also learning about space or biotech or AI or whatever the case may be. And so I think that's something for emerging managers to also bear in mind, which is to be able to offer that kind of access and exposure to your LPs as well. I think the other part that was interesting as well was also actually the geographic diversification piece, which was that the Asian family offices are looking for more exposure to the US. <laughs> you know, the European and the US are looking for more exposure to APEC and probably Southeast Asia after they look at South Asia and China. So I thought it was quite interesting to see that. In my head, I think a normal lot of VC fund managers will probably tackle local family offices because geography, proximity. Uh, but I thought it was interesting to see that crisscross <laughs> in flights or across the world. Yeah. I mean, I think the one other feature of the local family office landscape is that while they don't necessarily hire institutional money managers in-house, they often take a lot of advice from private banks. And that's where they see a lot of their flow. Private banks will offer products to them and say like, hey, do you want this BlackRock fund? Do you want this KKR fund? Whatever it is. And they get paid a placement fee placing out, you know, a billion dollars worth of their latest $10 billion fund or whatever the case may be. And so they are looking for access into other geographies and asset classes um, that are not necessarily mediated by the banks and feeling that maybe the banks are the bar to get through the bank, get on the bank platform is pretty high. Like you have to be a pretty big fund and a big name. And if you're looking for exposure to more emerging managers or smaller funds, you're just not going to find it through your private banker. And so there is an aspect of them trying to like go overseas and find exposure that is not available through their normal kind of professional advisors. What advice would you normally give or have you seen being given to family offices? In terms of allocations or? Yeah, allocation or common answers to common questions that you have while having a discussion with a family office. I mean, I think there's like financial advice and then there's like, like family and managerial advice. So I think on the financial advice stuff, a lot of what folks try to do with the office versus diversification, right? Which is like, you don't want to be 100% exposed to your core operating business. How do we help you over time get more different exposures and do it in a way that you're comfortable with? So I think a lot of that work initially is just to be like, okay, you are right now 100% exposed to real estate. How do we take that down to like 90% and then 85% because it's a process. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But I think the 
peculiarity of families is also just like they give advice on hey how do you think about wealth transfer to the next generation are your kids going to be learning about um do you expect your kids to work in the family business do you expect them to take over the family office what is the role that you expect them to have i think often some of those conversations are probably even more important because there is those are your shareholders right there's a familial dimension to decision making and i think jp morgan their wealth practice puts out a pretty good like pamphlet that walks families through like questionnaires and conversations with each other mm. that maybe the patriarch or matriarch never thought about right they were just busy building the business and then yeah. now they're like okay great i got this thing okay but what next right and yeah. so i think that's like an interesting conversation and also around like philanthropy like hey we've been lucky um how do we want to how do we want to represent some of our philanthropic interests through the family office as well right what are the causes that we care about how can we show up for our society and you actually see this in the latest mas guidelines for family office which is that for family offices setting up in singapore they're trying to incentivize them to invest for climate and also broader esg types of solution as an island obviously climate change is a big concern for us but also to invest more in local companies and local both listed and unlisted equities and credit so that it isn't just amassing pools of capital in Singapore. It's actually going to also have some sort of knock-on effect into the real local economy. Yeah, I think there's the question about how does it interact with the local economy. And I think that's the context of APEC, obviously, there's the context of Southeast Asia and Singapore. So I think what's been interesting is that Singapore has now recently put in a mandate for 10% of investments has to be in Singapore. So that obviously ranges the various asset classes from real estate, commercial to private assets and equity investments. Uh, so I think that's one thing they've done. I think they also now require for two non-family members to be part of the investment team per family office. But there is a kind of like a waiver or extension time period for it. I think they have several years to find that person to join the local family office. So I thought it was interesting. I think we already started seeing some of those jobs. I think Ray Dalio has a big office and a lot of folks have been pretty excited about, I think they're hiring for about five roles in the Singapore office. One of them is a VP level to handle some of the philanthropic work, APAC, decision-making, lobbying, regulatory conversations. And then I think they're also looking for a chief of staff to work with one of the principal levels. So I thought it was quite interesting. A lot of folks I know are curious or interested or applying for the role. So I think there's a big version of local jobs. The number says that they've hired about 1,500 folks over the past five years in Singapore. So I think it's been interesting to see those Family links. offices have? Yeah, 1,500 jobs in Singapore over the past five years. This came up in a ministerial parliamentary Q&A a few months ago. I guess that's more than I would have expected. I guess the question is like, are we just shuffling jobs around? It's a rage. It's not just pure Are there investors. even enough brands to go around? Well, I mean, as another reply I saw a few months ago, it's like, there is a critical shortage of family office talent. I'm like, no, I'm sure we can find somebody from the banking side or consulting side that can be there, right? And I think 1,500 jobs are not just pure investment roles. They're also like back office, middle office roles as well. But I can imagine that slowly becoming its own small vertical uh, specialized because I think it's different working for an institution versus working for a family office. I think there are different sensitivities, but also different SOPs and rules to handle. So I think it'll be an interesting emerging skill set, I guess, or specialization that folks will have. Yeah, I mean, I think 
what back to the sort of like every family is different. I think one of the concerns people have going to work for families is like how much decision making authority do you actually have? Right. Is everything ultimately going to be decided by the principal or do you have the latitude to build a more institutional investment process and committee and whatnot? And how solid is your mandate? I know a number of folks who worked at family offices who launched and then as the market turned, basically their principal was like, no more investments for the next 12 months. And they're like, okay, what am I going to do? Like sit on my hands. So I think that is one of the concerns that people have working with families. But at the same time, like there is incredible opportunity in working with families that want to be aggressive, want to diversify and build new platforms. And so I've also seen friends come out from institutions to go help bigger families build new verticals. And so that's pretty exciting as well. Yeah. And I think it shows up in different ways as well for those jobs, right? I think there's obviously lots of related sector jobs. So for example, I can imagine private banking or the lawyers, tax advisory, you know, these are not necessarily folks who are part of the funds, but adjacent. And I'm sure they have much more business as a result. And that's one. Two, of course, and this is the trickle down you know, on the living side. I think Singapore does benefit from being a great place to live, you know, and historically has been for the past 20 years, right? And so I think a lot of folks are not just, you know, setting up a family office, but there are family members who are now choosing to live in Singapore. And I think it's an interesting dynamic as well. I think that's where I think some of the sensitivity at a government slash societal level kind of kicks in, right? I thought it was an interesting dynamic where all these different factors are in play. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely makes Singapore more interesting, but I would sort of, I, I would encourage people if you're coming to set up a family office here, don't just live in your bubble. Actually experience Singapore. Be part of society. Contribute to it. Because I think it would be weird to just, I don't know. I, I think it's like easy to live in a, in a bubble in Singapore. So perhaps we might suffer from the same accusation that we live in our own bubbles. But, you know, it isn't the Singapore of Orchard Road or MBS or whatever it is, right? There's so much more to the country than that. Yeah, you know, I, I think I've known Melissa Quee, the former head of National Volunteer Philanthropy Center for many years. She's always been a huge advocate for families to be giving back and engaging. And I actually enjoyed a recent Straits Times article where I think she said, hey, you know, when we think about this net inflow of ultra high net worth individuals, I think it's not just a function of obviously providing jobs and hiring, but also being seen as being part of the community, right? And I thought that was a really important piece because if Singapore really becomes that Switzerland, right, which is, I think, a very comparable dynamic for family offices and family wealth, then I think there needs to be that social contract, right, in that sense, to be rebuilt for every wave of immigration and emigration. It is really hilarious, though, what people do. Like, I have some Nordic friends, and they did a, like, pick-up litter day. So they got their kids together, and they decided they were, like, going to pick up litter in their neighborhood. But there wasn't enough litter to pick up. And so, like, the kids were, like, fighting over which piece of litter to pick up. And then my friend was like, many of the locals seemed very concerned on their behalf that they were out in the sun picking up litter. And an auntie even bought her a packet drink and was like, come in out of the sun, stop picking up litter, which I thought was pretty hilarious. But yeah, I appreciate the sentiment, but I do think it's funny that they had to fight to pick up the litter that they couldn't find. I think the flip side of doing good is obviously not triggering, right? And I think Melissa Cree kind of, I found an article that she said, one of our national issues is really social cohesion, which is the flip side of social inequality said Ms. Kui, whose family manages hotels and commercial properties across the region. The suspicion of and resentment of foreigners coming here to just use Singapore leave a bitter taste in people's mouths because of conspicuous consumption. I think the word conspicuous consumption is a big one because I was in a grab recently and basically we were stuck in traffic near the central business district. And I remember there was like about 
30 Lamborghinis that were just like <laughs> in a group. And I think there was just maybe like a club oh, just God. trying to driving drive together. They were, drive, they were 30 Lamborghinis driving together. <laughs> and all of them were stuck in traffic because it's just not a good time to drive. So I'm not sure what they were thinking. And I remember I just saw the driver just kind of like pull out his phone and I was just watching him do that. And he starts recording, you know, that long half of them had made a turn, half of them were stuck waiting for a turn. He just did that pan of video. I was thinking to myself, man, a voter was lost today, you know, based on this video recording, right? Because I think conspicuous consumption can be quite, I think it's, it's Singapore's dense. I think it reminds me a bit of New York City as well, to some extent. Anyway, I think avoiding bloopers like that is important, right? Because any kind of conspicuous consumption is, you know, inequality is not, it's not fun to look at ever, right? Yeah, it's not fun to look at, but it exists, right? I mean, that's like a whole separate conversation about yeah. social support and redistribution, which is probably not in the mandate of this podcast, but we can we can chat about that offline. And the discussion about how we don't actually have an official poverty line and why that is the case and why we should. Yeah, I think there's always a strong parliamentary debate. And I think there's a lot of intersections between, obviously, immigrant versus non-immigrant, local versus foreigner, high wealth versus low wealth, middle class versus... You know, I think there's all these kind of dynamics that make it very difficult. But I think it just kind of goes back to like, as we talk about family offices and so and so forth, is I think th there's a lot of upside to it, right? Which is, I think, stronger investments and investments help create jobs. And investments can help drive, you know, kind of like that, you know, global sharing. So how do we minimize the downsides from a societal perspective is really important as well. I think there's a lot of good folks actually the as local well. and foreigner yeah. thing is an interesting one. Because like, if we really think about it, like this is an immigrant country. I don't know about your family, Jeremy, but like my grandparents oh, are from China. <laughs> Yeah, my great-grandparents, my grandparents. Right, so yeah. like, unless you were like Orang Laut and you were like native here when the British showed up, like very few of us are actually really native. Right. And as an immigrant country, I think it is an interesting question to ask, like what does local actually mean? When do you become a local? When you do national service you know? for Singaporean and, males is a big one. Okay, but how about for women? We don't do NS, but like, does that make us not local? It doesn't, right? Well, I'm, I'm just using Reddit as a threshold on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Public opinion, there we no, go. No, 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 but it's an interesting question, right? Which is like, I don't think we actually really talk about that. What makes someone Singaporean versus not? When does someone get to claim to be Singaporean? And when do we accept, when do we accept others? So like, I've met people who've lived in Singapore longer than I have, but I have a red passport and they don't. And I would make some claims that they are more Singaporean than I am. So I don't know, perhaps a topic for a different day. Yeah, I guess, you know, as we look forward, what do we think will be the future for, say, family offices in Singapore and Southeast Asia, looking ahead down the road? For me, I think the short term one that's obvious to me is that I think it will continue to go up, actually. So this problem slash this issue slash this uplift is going to continue because it's a function of, I think, Singapore working hard to attract wealth, both from, obviously, Europe, from the US, but also from China as well. So I think that's going to continue in the next few years. And I think, too, is like you said earlier, Shien, it's like, I think more jobs will be created because more and more family offices will start to hit their two to three-year timeline to start hiring local professionals. So that's going to start emerging as its own vertical. What else do you think is going to happen? I think there's like what I hope will happen. I don't know what will happen, but mm -hmm. I'm hoping that this isn't just a place where they come and park funds, but they actually do invest in the local ecosystem and not just financial assets. I guess the benefits of being wealthy is like you can kind of do what you want. Maybe instead of a Lamborghini, like... Can you invest in public art? Can you invest in public education? Can you invest in sports? Things that, you know, lots of people can enjoy. Because I think that kind of improves the quality of life for the city around you and not just for your own personal benefit. 
yeah, I mean, we can hopefully build like more robust and deep capital markets, which I think is something that New York and London have had a stranglehold on. And it would be great to be able to shift some of that center of gravity out to Asia. Yeah. I think it's a super fair point. I think the arts in New York City is heavily, if not mostly, supported by patronage, of course, with tourism as well. So I think that's going to be one interesting, I think, side effect is that we may potentially see more patronage. I've heard the National Gallery is a popular place for lots of folks. It means a beautiful venue, it's a beautiful space with philanthropy opportunities as well. So I think that's interesting as well. Yeah, I think one thing we'll continue to navigate, I think the conversation we have about society, I think the social contract will continue. And I'm quite hopeful that it improves over time. We'll just check back in on this, I guess, in a few years and see how it goes. Sounds good. Let's leave it there. All right. See you, Shien. See ya. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.